for a fleeting second, you may have heard that there was a financial collapse and a subsequent uprising in the small island nation of Sri Lanka. But do you know what really happened? So, join me, Desh, a storyteller and a member of the Sri Lankan diaspora, in my quest to find answers to the question, what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? In our previous episode, we delved deeper into Sri Lanka's economic crisis and how it fell apart. The Sri Lankan economic crisis, just like Sri Lanka's history, is enormously complex. To understand it, we must look at Sri Lanka's past. We must look towards its long history of ethnic conflict and violence, from its colonial legacy to the first wave of anti-Muslim and anti-Tamil riots since 1915, to the defeat of the Tamil Tigers, to its most recent terrorist attacks, in 2019, the Easter Sunday bombings took 257 lives and injured hundreds more across the island nation. Even years later, controversy and conspiracy still surround these attacks. The Rajapakshas who lost their presidential campaign in a surprise 2015 election loss came back less than a week after the attacks. This time, the younger brother Gotabe Rajapaksha would campaign for presidency on the promise of national security and eradication of religious terrorism. I spoke with Sanjana Hattatua, the founder of Ground Views, an expert on digital spaces and policy, to understand more about what led to the Easter Sunday bombings. You had the riots in March 2018. Just when the country was recovering from that, you had an unprecedented 52-day constitutional crisis with the then-president Maitripala Sirisena taking it upon himself to elect Mahinda Rajapaksa as the prime minister and getting rid of the then-prime minister, Ranil, the, the legitimate prime minister, Ranil Vikramasinghe. Now, I am completely empathetic to listeners not from Sri Lanka who are completely confused at this point of time <laughs> because you have... You know, you know what it is, right? You try to explain the Rajapaksas, you know, you lose some people, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's so hard to explain. And that's also the, the problem, right? You have a limited number of characters taking different acting roles in a tired script. And that is the tragedy of this country, which has so much of promise and potential, but is held back by bloody old men, right? Who are sycophants or fascists. So it, you had the 52-day constitutional crisis, which was catastrophic for the country's economy because you had a complete breakdown in constitutional paradigms, right? I mean, there was a complete chaos as to who the legitimate prime minister was and what could happen. And, you know, court cases, it went up to the Supreme Court. But you also had this social conversation, you had the social media, you know, doing disinformation uh, campaigns to kind of legitimize Mahinda and then target and violently target, you know, people who are opposed to that kind of thing, that appointment. And so there's all sorts of things going on in that 52 days. The 52-day constitutional crisis remained a dark spot in Sri Lanka's democracy. In 2018, former president Maitripala Sirisena would replace his prime minister, Ranil Vikramasinghe, with former president and prime minister Mahinda Rajapaksha. It was a time of extraordinary events, resulting in two coexisting prime ministers. If the names sound familiar, it is because these are the same people we have been speaking about this entire series. For decades and decades, the same political elites continue to shift political power among each other. And just when there was some clarity about all of that, early December after the Supreme Court ruling, 
I mean, it was really devastating on the economy, right? The stock market collapsed and, you know, obviously with the government in crisis, you don't have foreign investment coming in. So so we thought that was the, the worst of it. You know, so that was then the conundrum or the context um, that led to, or not led to, but 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 was present at the time of the bombings in April. And we had never seen anything like that. I mean, again, you know, people of my age, I mean, we have seen some horrible things, but this was not at, you know, something that we hadn't seen and experienced before. The synchronized nature, the targets of, of you know, being churches, the horrific nature of the attacks, the, the senselessness of it. Uh, and it, it, it was left field, right? I mean, there was no warning for the country, even though a few said that they had been warned by their fathers, that this would occur. And of course, later on, one discovers that all of the intelligence said that there was a heightened risk of this occurring and that the president and the PM knew, but they'd say that they didn't know. And that, you know, then you go into he said, he said, she said, they said, you knew, we didn't know. And this entire, you know, it's a kindergarten approach to a national catastrophe. But uh, it was, it was awful. I can't, you know, I really struggle to find the words to tell listeners what that kind of violence does to a country. You had children killed for God's sake. Right, and maimed, entire families gone and blinded. I mean, it's it's horrible. And so that was then what was really interesting, Desh, and I think listeners would be interested in this, is that it wasn't immediately after the bombings that the most violence took place. It was about a week after when the bombings became weaponized as narratives against all Muslims in the country. And this then was riding on the back of the March 2018 violence and riding on the back of the Alutkaba 2014 violence and riding on the back of uh, what has been since 2012 and post-war, incredible wave of Islamophobia in the country, which didn't exist during the years of the war. The brutality of the Easter Sunday attacks would be difficult to put into words. On April 21st, 2019, nine bombers inspired by the Islamic State group's ideology would target different churches and hotels across Sri Lanka. It was a synchronized mass act of violence that left echoes across the country. About 260 people were killed, with more than 500 injured across Colombo, Batiklo and Nigambo. The aftermath was deadly riots erupting across the country through a wave of anti-Islamic rhetoric and acts of violence. Muslim shops would be burnt down. A Muslim man was ultimately killed, many injured. Violence against Sri Lankan Muslims can be traced back to 1915 with Buddhist mobs attacking mosques and shops. During the civil war, they would be prosecuted by the Liberation Tamil Tigers of Elam, LTTE, ultimately leading to an exodus of about 75,000 Muslims forced to leave their homes by foot. Thousands remain displaced to this very day. The year 2012 marked a significant prominence in singular national Buddhist groups across the country. Tensions would rise high between communities. In 2014, there would be the Alutkama riots that would destroy over 200 Muslim homes and 100 Muslim-owned businesses. It was during 2014 that an emergence of Muslim extremist group would rise. Muslim government officials and politicians would report their existence to the national government as a potential threat. A group called the Sri Lanka Tahweed Jamaat would split into different groups. One of them would be the National Tawid Jamaat, where Zaharan, the puppeteer behind the Easter Sunday attacks, would give his sermons. 
Several Muslim groups who were attacked by Sahran's group would write complaints and letters to local authorities requesting his arrest. By 2018, Sahran's ideals would take a violent turn with anti-Muslim riots in Digana. Despite several complaints and reports, the NTJ and Sahran were largely ignored. The Sri Lankan Tawid Jamaat would also provide the army with intelligence of Sahran's whereabouts. The Sri Lankan intelligence officials would report to the Inspector General of Police of potential attacks. On the 21st of April 2019, the Easter attacks would take place. On the 23rd of April, ISIS would claim responsibility for the bombings. In October 2019, a report detailing the events leading up to the Easter Sunday would be presented to the Sri Lankan parliament. The report entails everything that led up to the attacks. It wasn't surprising, the outrage that followed. Why were pleas by Muslim groups ignored? Why wasn't there an investigation? Why didn't the government officials pay heed to the intelligence it received? Unsurprisingly, talks of conspiracies started rising. Talks of a hidden agenda under mass act of violence. I talked to Asif Fuad, a former war correspondent and a journalist, on the conspiracy surrounding the Easter attacks and what he thought. So there are several conspiracy theories that are revolving around the Easter Sunday attack, where some would say there is a deep state conspiracy. Some would even argue that Gotabe Rajapaksa was involved in it. But I believe, basically, that there is no conspiracy there. It was quite clear that the Easter Sunday attacks occurred by homegrown uh, violent extremist group that was led by uh, Zaharan Qasim, who goes by the name also, who's also known as Zaharan Hashim. So basically, he was a cleric who, or a Maulavi who was uh, preaching in predominantly Muslim town in the eastern province known as Kartankudi, which is just a few miles off from Batikalo. Since uh, 2007, 2009, he was anyway a radical preacher who was advocating uh, Wahhabism. So my analysis on uh, the Easter Sunday bombings or would be that there was a kind of a catalyst on one end there was the rise of uh, Sinhala Buddhist ultranationalism that had emerged primarily because of the Rajapaksa regime uh, supporting some of these groups or indirectly uh, uh, having some form of affiliation with the groups such as Bodhubala Sena, Ravana, Balev. And on the other hand, we see the rise of ISIS. So combination of both of these factors actually contributed towards the Easter Sunday bombings. If you look at uh, how lone wolf type attackers emerge, they whether it's the Boston Marathon bomber or whether it is uh, an Al-Qaeda type lone wolf attacker, we can clearly uh, draw a conclusion that most of these groups do not have particular central command that they follow orders from. They basically pledge allegiance to the, the group such as ISIS and then they conduct their operation on their own. So they have complete operational autonomy in that sense. So this particular group had anyway been operating in Kartankudi and most other places. I remember back in 2009, uh, there was uh, an arms amnesty in order to disarm some of these Muslim militant groups. Now we need to understand that the following the war and even during the war, there were a complex relationship with 
what we call paramilitary groups. There were groups such as PLOT, EPDP, EPRLF. Then uh, on the other hand, we had Karuna faction. So then uh, within the Karuna faction, there was a group known as the Pillian faction. Then uh, we had several groups which were known as jihadist groups that were operating in the eastern province. So there was a CIA uh, communique that was issued to the U.S. Uh, ambassador where this particular operative quite clearly uh, states that there are jihadist groups operating in the eastern province, but their main focus was to purify uh, Islam or to uh, purge the Sufi practices that were happening in places like uh, Katankudi. When we look at uh, the rise of Mahind, the Gotabe Rajapaksa, we can quite clearly see that he basically, this was kind of an opportunity for him to ride the Islamophobic wave in order to present himself as a champion of the Sinhala Buddhist community and a protector of the people. So this was an event that happened by chance. So if we are to find a culprit for the Easter Sunday attack, I would say it was essentially the administration that was in power because on one end, there was actionable intelligence and the policymakers did not uh, act on this. Eventually, any intelligence product has to be executed by the policymaker or those who are in a capacity to make decisions. Less than a week after the Easter attacks, Gotabe Rajapaksha would announce his presidency, promising national security and the eradication of religious terrorism. He would promise to bring back glory to the Rajapaksha name after his brother, Mahinda Rajapaksha, was ousted in 2015 after claims of corruption. I talked to Malanarya Singha, a journalist from Sri Lanka, to further understand the aftermath of the Easter Sunday attacks. How were the Rajapakshas hailed by the Sri Lankan people before the collapse and what do they think of them now? We can talk about the Rajapaksa family and, you know, how the faith in the Rajapaksas, because they did have majority and overwhelming support in the country, especially in the last last decade. And, you know, there's much written about the family as a whole. So, I mean, if you go back to 2010 presidential elections, when you know, Mahinda Rajapaksha, he was elected in a landslide vote. You know, there was no question about it. I mean, at that point, he was seen as a, as a god. He was deified. You know, people wax lyrical about him. Artists wrote, wrote songs about him. And he was literally hailed as a king. You know, he was, you know, addressed as, you know, there were songs written about him, which addressed him as Rajatuma, right, which means king. So, and, and uh, a very learned celebrity, you know, traced his ancest- ancestry to King Dudugamu. Uh, but from 2010 to 2015, what we saw is the, is the Rajapaksa family, they consolidated more and more power onto themselves, you know, thereby setting up, uh, you know, what is now known as a nepotistic regime along with an, uh, with an ecosystem uh, of... Um, uh, you know, ecosystem which supported the Rajapaksas. So in 2015, during the presidential elections, when Mahinda Rajapaksa and the family was ousted, the rallying cry during that time for that particular election was corruption, you know, ending corruption. And the new government which came into power, uh, which is known as the Yahapalane government, which means, you know, good governance, right? So they came as, you know, as a foil, as, as, a, as a deterrent to the corruption or the corrupt political culture, you know, that had uh, been, you know, uh, in, in operation in, in Sri Lanka for a very long time. And the face of that corruption, at least 
at, at that point, they pointed towards the Rajapaksa family. So the family at the height of their power lost the 2015 election. But they never really lost their, I guess, uh, core constituency. You know, they became, and, and, and we see this over 2015 to 2019, they became a very powerful opposition to uh, the Yahapalani, the, the good governance government. Uh, then we have the East attacks, you know, which happened. And Gotabe Rajabaksha announced his candidacy, you know, a mere six days after the Easter ball, you know, not even a week. So, and at the core of his campaign was ensuring national security. And the aftermath of the East attacks worked uh, worked in his favor uh, because, you know, there was a lot of revelations about, about the glaring lapses that were uh, made by those who were responsible for national security, like like the president and like also the police chief. So, uh, like, for example, you know, what, what was revealed about them is that preventive steps that they could have taken, that the authorities could have taken uh, to stop the East attacks were not taken. So, uh, so this was the bedrock of his campaign. You know, he promised to strengthen intelligence services, which were greatly weakened, according to him, during the previous government. And to ensure national security, his campaign, just like, I guess, Mahindra Rajapaksha's deification, he, it created this, this kind of uh, uh, like a mythical figure. You know, uh, the campaign motto was, you know, Vadakarana Ape Virua, uh, which means the, the war hero who works because he, you know, he himself has been, uh, had been part of the army and uh, he was the defense secretary during, during the war and his brother. So, uh, it, it kind of brought together quite ingeniously the the aspects you know of his administrative skills of his efficiency and his ruthlessness that he symbolized and it also brought together the mythicized figure of the ranavirwa you know which is the war hero so in 2019 when they came for elections again they came up with you know this campaign where they promoted these intellectuals you know quote unquote intellectuals uh, who would bring about a, a, a systems change to change the political culture of this country? And you had la- young intellectuals from different fields, you know, who would, who was going to be, uh, I mean, who was supposedly going to, you know, take over uh, the incompetent, you know, corrupt individuals who were part of the parliament. But at the same time, the campaign also, you know, uh, the other, I guess, uh, founding principles of this campaign was Buddhist, you know, single Buddhist ethno-nationalism. They were, they were the, and, and of course, major, uh, majoritarianism. You know, those were the fundamental aspects of the campaign as well. So overall, when Gotabe got elected, there was a lot of optimism. And, you know, he won by a landslide. 6.1 million uh, Sri Lankans voted for him. And, you know, the general elections were also held after that. And then they secured, the government secured a 2.3 uh, majority, sorry, uh, uh, two-thirds majority uh, in the parliament. So from that point onwards, the myth started to unravel when the elections happened. Because, you know, he promised that, you know, that these, you know, the, the Vyatmaga or the, the these, these intellectuals will, will, will be elected uh, as a part of his government. But most of them were not. So that was, I guess, the first unraveling of, of the myth of Gotabe. Then, you know, there were other fissures which followed. Then we have the poor management of the pandemic, which is also, like I mentioned before, one of the main reasons for the current economic crisis. Then also there was this, I think, about the second year into his, uh, into his presidency, this idea of failure came to be intrinsically linked with Gotabe. 
While the Rajapaksha's name remained tarnished and public disapproval continued to grow, the state remains undeniably bound to protect them, and it is all thanks to Sri Lanka's current constitution. In 2020, Gotabaya Rajapaksha would make changes to Sri Lanka's law that would give the president incredible power, allowing him to hold multiple ministries, sack ministers at his will, dissolve parliament through a five-year term and interfere into the previously independent election commissions. The president would be able to probe into any investigation surrounding Sri Lanka's police and questioning related human rights violations and anti-corruption as well. In my conversation with Sanjana Hathatua, Sanjana mentioned that Sri Lanka's executive presidency is like nothing in this world. The executive presidency for non-constitutional theorists, and I'm not a constitutional theorist or academic myself, but I have been uh, you know, hugely privileged to benefit from some of the finest minds in the country and elsewhere who have critiqued the evolution of this office from 1977 onwards and the constitution at the time of which we've had uh, over 20 amendments. And most of the amendments, well, not all, but most of the recent amendments, particularly after Mahindaraj Baksa, and then subsequently after Gotabe Rajpaksa with the 20th Amendment, were to deify what was already an office that was beyond the ability of parliament to have a check around. So as far back as 1983, the then executive president, J.R. Jayavadana, said that the only thing he couldn't do was to change genders. He couldn't change a male to a female and a female to a male. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's essentially what he said. In 1983, with the powers of the office that he held, and now you can imagine that if that was the power then that this office had constitutionally enshrined, what the, what the subsequent amendments have done. And I've written about this, right? I mean, to kind of help explain to non-constitutional theorists the degree to which this harms them, because when Gotabe did what he did, to strengthen the executive presidency, a lot of people who voted for him said, yeah, this is a good thing because let's give this man who we voted for absolute authority to do what he wants because he has promised to do what he will do to get the country in order. And something that I said is like, just imagine, it's a thought experiment, right? Tomorrow, you have your enemy, your the, the one you hate the most from another political party inhabiting that political office. What would he, she or they do? And they kind of went silent then because it's all very well and good to kind of countenance that kind of power as long as in Sinhala you call it ape minhiek, ape deak, meaning it's our man, it's our person, it's our thing. But the moment you try to begin to contemplate the power of that office in the hands of somebody else that you may not like, then you kind of go silent because then you kind of begin to realize the the the, the danger. It, it's not democratic, right? There is there is not there is nothing. Nobody, no institution, no political check, no checks and balance. Uh, uh, no, no. It's it's a beyond reproach. That person is immune from prosecution. That person can do whatever he, she, or they want and get away with it. And as we have seen with Mr. Gotabe Rajapaksa, I mean, you can't make this shit up. The 52 days he spent out of the country in five-star luxury, hopping from one country to another in suites with his wife and God knows who else, was paid for by us. Because there is a provision that essentially says that all of the all of a former president's expenses still have to be paid for the duration that they are alive. Of course, we've never had a president who went into, who had to flee. 
but we don't even know. I mean, it's it's like you're probably running into millions of US dollars, right? These these hotel suites and you know five star luxury and flights in business class don't come free. So I mean, so that's what that political office does and enshrines and you know uh, you know perpetuates. So it really is unlike anything else. Um, uh, is what constitutional scholars have told me. It's the 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 the, the one thing that you can really compare it with is with a pantheon, a Greek pantheon of deities or a or a Hindu pantheon of deities, where you have paterfamilias or the or the or the head of Zeus, if you will, you know, or Vishnu or whoever, you know, God, right? And then you have this entire family that is beneath them. And you know, that's what the Rajpaksas are. But this one office is 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 really extraordinary. And 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 it's really something else. And it it has no place, no place in democracy, no, none whatsoever. It's period. There, you know, there's no if and but. There's no gray area there. It's a heinous political office that corrupts democracy and any incumbent. It must go. It must go. With all that said and done, in June 2022, the Sri Lankan cabinet would approve reforms for the constitution to limit presidential powers. The bill would undo everything Gotabe has done and was triggered by the events of the Aragalia, which we'll get into on our next episode.